Now Playing listeners, and thanks for joining me for a very special episode of Now Playing, where we're going to go behind the scenes on the 1986 sci-fi horror film Chopping Mall. Now, if you've donated to support our show for the fall 2016 donation, you've probably already heard our review of this movie. But coming out of it, we had a number of questions, and as our Horror Films of 1986 series is winding up with last Friday's review of From Beyond, I wanted to go ahead and talk to some of the makers of Chopping Mall and find out about that movie and some of the decisions that made into it, and really get to the bottom of a lot of internet rumors about extended cuts of the film, original titles, cast members, and more. So for this bonus episode, I'm going to be talking with the writer-director of Chopping Mall, Jim Wynorski, and the co-writer of Chopping Mall, Steve Mitchell. So we'll start with Jim, and if you're not familiar with the name, I guarantee you've seen some of his movies. He has directed over 100 films per IMDb, produced 59 of them, written 54 films. Some of the films he's directed in addition to Chopping Mall are... Tracy Lord's film Not of This Earth in 1988, Death Stalker 2 in 1987, 976 Evil 2 in 1991, Ghoulies 4 in 1994, numerous parody series, including The Bear Wench Project, Alabama Jones and the Busty Crusade, House on Hooter Hill, and The Devil Wears Nada, plus another movie we've reviewed on Now Playing quite a while back, The Return of Swamp Thing the follow-up to Wes Craven's original. I was really excited to talk with this director about Chopping Mall, and yeah, I had a couple lingering questions from Swamp Thing as well. So, Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Now, if you could take us back, how did your involvement with Chopping Mall or Robot or Killbots, depending on which title we want to go back to, how did that start? Well, it began uh, in, I believe, early 1985. Vestron Video came to... Roger Corman and, and his wife, and they said, we want a film about a killer in a mall. And Julie, who produced Chopping Mall, said to me, have you got any ideas? If you write a good one, I'll let you direct it. And so I didn't want to do a film about, you know, a slasher. I just did not, you know, because they had already had been Phantom of the Mall and a number of other killers in the in different malls and i said well if i'm going to do a mall movie i'd rather do something interesting so uh my partner steve mitchell and i came up with the idea of having security robots in the mall go haywire and vestron loved the idea and uh, we had a go picture you know three or four days after we submitted the outline that's incredible. And you'd only directed one film before that, The Lost Empire, correct? Correct. I had done The Lost Empire and learned a lot from making that picture on what not to do and what to do. So when I got the chopping wall, I said, okay, I'm going to do what I think is right. And um, it turned out pretty good at the end of the day. And it's got quite a, a following over the years. Yeah, it certainly has. And you know, I went back and I watched The Lost Empire before this review, and, you know, very, very different than Chopping Mall. Were you a fan of horror? You mentioned there were a lot of slashers, but were you a fan of slashers or horror going into this film? In the 80s, every other week, there was a slasher movie coming out, and I didn't want to do that again, because I figured 
if I do a killer in the mall slasher movie, then it's just going to become part of the, the background. So I opted to do something different. And I'm glad I did because it turned out to be a, a fun movie to make. Absolutely. And, you know, it's got a good mix of horror and kills and comedy. How much were you really trying to go for a straight, serious tone? And how much was intentional, self-referential genre humor? I've always been accused of putting humor in my movies. And I do. Uh, I, I totally admit it. I try to work as much comedy into all my movies. There's only been a couple where I've restrained myself. But most of the movies I do ha have a very comedic bent. And Shopping Mall was no exception. You know, I had put a lot of comedy into Lost Empire, but I was doing a more serious movie. So I kind of put comedy in, but I put it in a, in a different way. Yeah, and a lot of that's at the beginning and with a lot of Corman cameos there and things. I did have a question about the eating Raul characters that show up. Paul Bartel created those characters for eating Raul, and then he was in your film playing that character, but with a screenplay you wrote with Steve and directed by you. Did you talk to him at all or have any reaction from him about his characters you know, being written by somebody else? You know something? All that was the ad-libbed off of Marion and Paul. The script didn't even have that, but they agreed to appear in the movie. And because they did, we wrote scenes for them. But most of the material that they say at the very beginning is based on what they were thinking at the time. And they came up with most of it. There was a scene that we wrote for them where they try to sneak a horse into the mall and the horse and uh, they are dispatched by one of the kill bots, but that got, never got filmed. Right. And I do love the fact that you included those script pages, though, on the new Blu-ray. It was really fun to read those. Yeah, it would have been great. But, you know, Roger didn't want to pay for the horse. And <laughs> so we just said, OK, you know, and I kind of forgot about that scene for 30 years. And it was only when we started doing the Blu-ray that, you know, we pulled out the old script and, and my buddy Steve Mitchell said, hey, look at this. Remember this? And I did not remember it. It was something that just had had gone completely into the closet. So I said, well, we should share that. And it, it ended up being put on the Blu-ray because we wanted to try to put as much stuff as we could on that Blu-ray as extra features. Talking about the Blu-ray, the transfer of the film there is absolutely gorgeous. And I understood that in the past it was difficult or the previous DVD was done just off of a print. Yes. So we found the internegative, not the original negative, but there's an internegative. And we also found the original magnetic sound stripe. So both the sound and the picture look amazingly good. I had done this transfer about a year and a half ago, and I was trying to get it on Blu-ray. And finally, uh, Lionsgate said, okay, well, we'll do it. And they bought my master, which I had made uh, about a year and a half ago to take around to, you know, colleges and, and screenings and stuff. So that's what we were running for a while instead of a 35 print. IMDb trivia, and I know that that's often wrong, but it had said that the original was held up in legal rights, and that's why it had to be done off of a print for the DVD. Is there any truth to that? Well, they only owned the original Vestron Master, and uh, they, the original negative was not available to them, but it was available to me, so I made my version off of that print. And 
when they came to do the Blu-ray, I sold them my master. Well, it looks gorgeous, better than it's ever looked, so kudos on that. Yes, it does look great. Going back, you said that Corman wouldn't pay for the horse. Is it also correct that you did this entire film for under a million dollars? Yes. The budget was 650000 That's incredible. You couldn't get a robot for that these days. Well, uh, Robert Short, who created those robots, did an amazing job. And I was very, very impressed with his work. Still am. There's a little bit of talk on the Blu-ray features about how this was originally screened as Killbots and then changed to Chopping Mall. But again, internet being what it is, I'd read that 20 minutes were cut out of the film before it's re-released. That's total bullshit. Okay, good to know. The film was always 77 minutes long. So whoever came up with that thought is just talking through his hat because the film was always 77 minutes long. And uh, we originally tested, did a test screening in Arizona under the title Killbots, and it didn't do very well. And then we pulled the film back, you know, and we screened it again. And Roger says, I, I don't understand why this film did not perform. And maybe it's the title, he said. And there was a guy who was changing light bulbs in the screening room. And the, the guy who was changing light bulbs in the screening just looked up and said, why don't you just call it Chopping Mall? <laughs> and uh, I looked at Roger, Roger looked at me, and Roger said immediately, we're half off, it's just the beginning. And then I said, uh, we're shopping costs you an arm and a leg. And he said, go make a new poster. And we, within a week, I had a new poster, the, the posters that everybody's familiar with. And uh, we tested it again in another section of Arizona. And it went through the roof, it made a ton of money. So uh, it, it taught me a great lesson about perception and how the audience perceives things just based on a title. Can't do it today because of the internet, but back then when there was no internet, you could get away with changing a title and try, trying it again. And that's what we did. You talked about making a new poster. The trailers for Chopping Mall show footage that wasn't in the film as well, like a protector carrying around a severed arm and head. Was that ever intended for the theatrical release? or No, that was shot expressly for the trailer. There was two shots. There was a shot of the robot carrying around a severed arm or a severed leg. And there was a shot of some, you know, metallic pincer trying to go for a, a girl that was sitting in a chair. And those two were shot by uh, a guy named Steve Barnett at our local studio. And they were shot expressly for the trailer. I was always surprised with the trailer that you were able to show the head explosion on, I believe it was a green band trailer, wasn't it? I believe it was, and that, but that was the 80s, pal. The 80s, and you could get away with so much shit back in there, you couldn't even touch that now. But that trailer played outside 42nd Street theaters constantly, and people would gather around and watch it again and again and again just to see that head explode. It's kind of cool. You also had a tremendous cast come together for this film, and you talk a little bit on the Blu-ray about the casting process, but when they were all together, how was the energy among the main actors? You know, there was a big camaraderie between everybody. Everybody was having a good time. We owned the mall. We were there at night. There was no, no distractions, and everybody had a good time. And, you know, Kelly Maroney was fantastic. Barbara Crampton, Carrie Emerson, John Tolesky, everybody was perfect. And I was able to put a lot of familiar Corman faces like Dick Miller and Mel Wells 
in the picture. I got uh, Angus Scrim in the picture, and, and and Paul and Mary, you know, Warnock, Paul Bartell and Mary Warnock. It was it was it was loaded with cameos, and I had a good time with all those. Was Garrett Graham also a cameo there? I mean, he was pretty well known for horror with Demon Seed in the 70s and would go on to do some more. And I never could tell if that was another in-joke or if that was... Garrett was a, was somebody I knew, and I called him up, and I said, you want to do this? He says, I have a cold. I said, just, there's not a lot of dialogue. Just come and do it. And he did it. I think we paid him. I don't know what we paid him on that night. Not a lot. But it was a fun job. You know, every time I see this movie, I say, oh, my God, I'm, all the talent that came together for, for, you know, a B movie. But I think that's why it's got a, a long lasting cult status, because there's so many things to look at in the picture besides the beautiful girls. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, with Barbara Crampton, you had a scream queen there. I mean, the year before she'd done Reanimator and the same year as Chopping Mall from Beyond. With this being your first horror film, did she offer any kind of insight to the horror audience? All I know is that she was gorgeous, and I loved working with her. So I'm still friends with her, and I put her in another picture, you know, years later. But we're, we still, you know, talk to each other all the time. That's great. And as you mentioned a couple of times, Chopping Mall really has endured with all of these elements that came together. When did you realize this wasn't, you guys say on one of the commentaries, you thought it was going to be just a drive-in movie that would play for a couple weekends and be forgotten, and instead you guys made a cult classic that's endured for three decades and counting. When did that hit you? You know, I think it happened, I don't know, about five or six years ago. I looked at the IMDb pages on Chomping Mall, and there was, you know, review after review after review and comments and everything else, and I... I was like shocked that so many people had remarked about it. And I always get fan letters from people and that's one of their favorites. And I, I just have to say, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, lightning in a bottle. Sometimes it happens. You are such a accomplished director. You have over a hundred directorial credits on IMDb, been working for over 30 years in the industry. I did want to just kind of touch upon a few other films that you've done that we've talked about on our shows and get your impressions of. All right. Go ahead. Uh, one is Return to Swamp Thing, and that had a special edition DVD that you did a commentary for that was wonderful to listen to. But you were following up Wes Craven in a time where his name was huge with Nightmare on Elm Street and all of that. So what was your approach when making the sequel to the original? I didn't want to copy Craven's show. I wanted to do my own version. And I put a lot more comedy into my version. And I didn't really like the way the costume was in the, in the original film. So I had a new costume made. And I think mine is a little bit more accurate to what's in the comic book. And it was fun working with Heather Locklear and Sarah Douglas. And Louis Jordan was a was a was a prick, hated his guts. <laughs> uh, the rest of the cast were great. Monique Gabrielle, Joey Segal, they were all great to work with, except for Louis Jordan, who I hate. <laughs> you went into that a little bit on the commentary too. That's that's funny to hear you speak so bluntly about it, though. But no, he's a creep with a, from a long line of creeps. Okay, and uh, I'm you know he I think he's dead now, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, he uh, died, I guess, last year in his 90s. Well, you know, 
pricks live a long time, I've heard. <laughs> so, anyway. Was any of Return to Swamp Thing done with the intent of setting up the television series? Because I know they used some of the props. Absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. I had, there was no, there was no talk of a TV series when I was doing that. I was, this was just, you know, I'm going to do my, my version of Swamp Thing, and I did. And it turned out pretty good. And you've done a number of sex scenes in your career. Oh, but- no, Arnie, what are you talking about? <laughs> Come on. Was Swamp Thing one of the strangest? Yes. I mean, you have Heather Locklear eating a little bit of plant. And- <laughs> yes, it was. But, you know, it was it, it was something that we put in the script, and I said, you know, this is how we saw it, do a love scene in Swampland. And then you switched and made him appear human after a certain point in that scene, and it wasn't even Dick DeRock. Why not leave him or him in the plant suit for the rest of the scene? I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Simple as that. I wanted to show two human beings embracing in slow motion in the swamp. And I felt that would be more romantic. And if I had left her making love to the suit, then I, I think it, would have, it wouldn't have been the same scene. So looking back at your career, where does Chopping Mall rank as far as fondness for your films? You know, there's something, except for a couple of titles, most of the films I've done, you know, are good fond memories for me. I've done a lot of films. Beyond the 100 I've directed, there's probably... 70 more that I've produced and written. And it's quite a, a lengthy list that I couldn't even even attempt to remember them all single-handedly. I'd probably need to go to IMDb. But again, I, I like a lot of them. You know, there's, there's, each of them has good memories. You can kind of tell who I was dating if you start watching them in order. And it was a lot of fun to make those movies. And what are you working on now where fans of your films can see more of your work? Well, I have a film called Cobra Gator coming out very shortly. And, uh, of course, Shark and Saw Women's Prison Massacre came out uh, this year. And I've switched over to family movies recently because that's where things are headed in the industry. Family movies are doing very well, whereas horror movies and creature movies and action movies are not doing well. So I'm going where the money is, and I'm making movies that are family-oriented. I've got one out now called Nessie and Me, and I also have a movie called The Doggone Christmas, which is coming out middle of November. I just did a Doggone Hollywood, and I'm about to start writing a script for a Doggone Mystery, which is, and I have a thing called Baby Bigfoot. So I'm continuing in the family market now. But who knows? You know, another year, things will change again, and I'll be doing something else. You have to follow the, the lead of the big the, the studios and trying to make films that people want. Once again, I want to compliment you on not just Chopping Mall, the film, but that gorgeous Blu-ray set that just came out. I know you were involved in so many ways with the bonus features and things. It's just a gorgeous set Lionsgate put out. And Yeah, I, I, th- I, I thank you. It's, it, it, was, it was a labor of love. And thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I greatly appreciate that as well. And All right, Arnie. Well, you know, thank you for uh, calling. And uh, I hope this program plays well for your audience. And uh, uh, I would just suggest that, you know, people go out and check it out. Because uh, the film is playing every, is everywhere right now. The, uh, the Blu-ray is on sale almost, you know, in all the, all the markets. So thank you. And I appreciate your uh, 
time and effort. And let's um, do it again sometime. Thanks to Jim Wynorski for coming on the show and talking with me about the movie. But now let's go a little bit more in depth into the writing and production of this film and the release of the new Blu-ray. Joining me now is Steve Mitchell, co-writer and second unit director of Chopping Mall. Thanks for coming on the show, Steve. Hey, how are you, Arnie? Nice to talk with you. With the 30th anniversary Blu-ray of Chopping Mall having come out pretty recently, I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you about the origination of this film. How did your involvement with Chopping Mall start? Well, it's sort of no secret that Jim and I are old pals. We knew each other from uh, our fan days in New York. We're both from New York. Um, and we met at a convention. I think it was the EC Fan at a convention and, you know, a hundred years ago. You know, we stayed friends for a long, long time, even, even after he moved to California. And eventually I moved to California and we were still pals. And one, you know, we used to get together, you know, all the time to hang out. And one lady called me up and uh, he said, listen, I, I got an idea for a potential movie that Julie Corman is interested in having me do. Would you be interested in working on it? I said, yeah, because I had ambitions towards writing when I came out here. So we went to a restaurant and we sat down, we had a cup of coffee and a piece of pie. We started, we came up with this idea that fit the sort of needs of Vestron Video who approached Julie. Julie was told that Vestron was willing to finance a movie about a killer in a shopping mall. This was back in the era where, you know, as, as they were so uncharitably called, Dead teenager horror movies were really popular. So I said, yeah, I can do that. I mean, at the time, I was sort of into the genre. And so Jim and I worked out something relatively quickly where we were doing basically the Phantom of the Shopping Mall, you know. And it kind of worked. I thought it was solid. I To this day, I don't really have very much memory of it beyond that. And then Jim said what was to be maybe the most important sentence in the history of Shopping Mall, which is, how do we do it with robots? I may be paraphrasing, but that was that was the gist of it. And it took me X amount of seconds to kind of digest that. And I said, okay. And so we worked up kind of half an outline, half a beat sheet, and submitted it to Julie literally the next day. And she submitted it to Vestron. And this is back in the day when there was no, there were no computers and there was no email. I think she probably faxed it. <laughs> it's a fax. It's so 20th century. It's ridiculous. <laughs> And basically, we had a go picture in a week. No script. They just said, yes, we want the movie, make it. And Julie hired Jim. And then Jim sort of hired me to co-write it with him. And then the adventure of a lifetime began. So help me understand a little bit of the relationships. Now, Julie Corman is Roger Corman's wife. Yeah, and Julie had her own production company sort of within Rogers' production company. I think, it was called Trin I think it was called Trinity Pictures. And how did Vestron Video relate with Roger Corman's productions? Vestron was an independent label that was starting to produce its own content. You know, this is back in the go-go 80s, as I'm very fond of saying, and HomeVid was a big deal. There was a lot of money being made. And I think Vestron was licensing stuff. And I think they had to have been making pretty good money because then they started producing stuff or financing stuff, which, of course, for Roger was, you know, and, and therefore Julie, that was just, it was the kind of deal that they always were receptive to, I think, where somebody would come in and offer financing. 
that's kind of how it happened. They they knew the Corman's were good at making genre films, and they knew they were good at making genre pictures for a price. I think all of that led to the decision for them to get in touch with the Corman's. I'm surprised they didn't go directly to Roger, but you know I don't know the specifics of how that that end of the deal was made, other than the fact that they financed and Julie produced it. Before Chopping Mall, I see through IMDb, you had written a couple episodes of the G.I. Joe cartoon series? I had written some G.I. Joes. I had written, I think I, I wrote a Transformers. I wrote a few other things. I primarily was working in the comics business at the, at the time. I was an anchor for Marvel and for DC and uh, was freelance. And... I came to California like every other person comes to California. I wanted to get in the film business. And so my day job or my night job, which was inking comics, sort of financed my, you know, trying to get uh, a foothold, you know, in the film business and writing, et cetera. So I had the flexibility to work on this picture with Jim. You know, again, it was, as the word I used before, was quite an adventure. And it was, it was like, creating is like going to grad school. I mean, I had gone to film school in New York, and but this was a chance to go to grad school because we were going to be attached. We were attached to this movie from literally the very first moment of inception all the way through birth, and uh, it was it was a remarkable experience. This was your first feature writing credit, and it was Jim's second feature directing. He had only done uh, one picture before The Lost Empire, correct? He wrote Sorceress. And then I think he wrote and directed Lost Empire. I know we wrote Sorceress because it came out. Um, I was still living in New York City at the time, and it came out on a Friday where one of the worst blizzards in the city's history hit. I remember going to the Rivoli Theater to go see Sorceress. I think it was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I came out about you know a little less than two hours later, and it was still snowing. And it kept snowing and snowing and snowing and snowing for you know the better part of a day and a night. And I wonder... <laughs> I wanted to have the business on Sorceress was affected by the weather. I'm sure Roger wasn't happy. Both of Jim's previous films were kind of sword and sorcery films. Right. Not horror-related. So how did you two feel going into a slasher film in the 80s, which really was the heyday of that type of film? You know, it's weird. You know, both Jim and I kind of look back at the movie today, and, I mean, it has a horror movie title, Chopping Mall. But it's not really a horror picture. It has horror moments, but I, I actually think it was sort of an action picture more than a horror movie. You know, when you take away Susie Slater's head blowing up, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, and, you know, some of the other moments uh, where we have some gore, you know, John Terlesky getting his neck uh, slashed, you know, punctured or whatever that was. You know, it's, it's really a lot more about running and jumping and shooting and, and stunts and all that stuff. It's, you know, it's, in its own strange way, Chopping Mall is a whole bunch of genres. It's not just one genre. I would agree with that. And I think it, by 86, the horror genre had started to morph a little bit anyway. There's elements of humor in Chopping Mall for certain. A couple of the cut scenes we'll talk about with the horse had a little bit more of that. <laughs> okay. And in 1986, horror and comedy were really getting together a lot friday the 13th part six went kind of comedic you know we have vamp house did you kind of sense that vibe to bring other elements into chopping mall i would love to say yes but at the end of the day humor and chopping mall reflects just 
Jim and me being, uh, you know, Weisenheimers, as maybe my <laughs> grandfather would say, we basically seem to have some kind of an understanding uh, that humor and scares were related. Uh, you know, Jim and I have one thing in common. Our favorite movie is The Thing, the original Howard Hawks version of The Thing. By the way, I love the Carpenter version as well. I mean, it's amazing how good both those movies are. And they're the same and different at this, at, you know, of course, at the same time. But the original version of the thing had a lot of humor in it. Uh, the heroes were, you know, real greatest generation, World War II pilot types, Air Force types. And so there was humor in that picture. And I think that really informed the sensibility that Jim and I had uh, when it came to doing Chopping Mall. In fact, there's a, you know, a blatant lift in Chopping Mall, which references a line from the thing. You know, that was our little tip of the hat. You know, the whole thing about uh, what if they can read their minds, and Russell says, yeah, they're going to be really mad when they get to me, which is kind of a line from the thing, uh, the climax of the thing. So that was kind of in there in our DNA anyway as, as writers. And Jim is very big on being entertaining. You know, that's his nature. I think that's, you know, one of the tropes of, of a lot of his movies. So we just kind of went with it and we had fun with it. I, you know, the thing was, for me, I said, well, I may never get to do this again. So I wanted to try and have as much fun with it as possible. And a lot of this movie is stuff we wanted to see in a movie. You know, part of it is a reaction to other horror movies and just part of it was just plain desire. I mean, for example, if you were watching a lot of the dead teenager movies of the time, you'd see that the heroes, you know, meaning the kids, you know, were just running and screaming and they never did anything to defend themselves. Or if they did, they did it really pathetically. And I, and I said to Jim I, at the time, and this is this is on the, uh, the Blu-ray extras, you know, like, damn it, the guys in my movie are going to go find guns someplace and they're going to at least try and defend themselves. Because I just left the idea of guns inside the mall. It just really appealed to me. And Jim completely agreed with that. And that's why, you know, the guys arm up. And, of course, they arm up with Peck and Paws, which is, you know, we were both big fans of the Wild Bunch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one plus one equals two, I guess. You said in this interview that you were a fan of horror at the time. Yes. So what did you think of 80s horror? And I'm taking from that an implication that you're not a fan anymore. You know, we all grow up. And the thing is that I start as a, as a kid, I watched all the classic horror movies, you know, on television. You know, I saw the Universal stuff. I watched the Corman stuff, the Hammer stuff, of course. And, you know, even though those were horror movies, they were all strangely benign. You know, they weren't really, uh, they weren't real nasty. And most of what those movies were about were atmosphere and uh, sets and design and of course the hammer movies of course sex tna of which there was a ton and so when the 80s came around i still saw a lot of horror movies a lot of and i saw a lot of them with jim when i moved out to california you know we used to go to a place in culver city that was sort of a theater that was near mgm called the culver and the Culver was a big hardtop theater, but what they had done, as, as it's been done a lot in the 80s, they, they split it into, I think, three screens, maybe four. And they ran drive-in fare all the time. So we used to go see a lot of, you know, B-movies and genre pictures and drive-in fare, you know, because it was something you did with your buddies. And that was part of kind of the social environment of the time. And I still enjoyed those movies. 
up to a point where, you know, I, if I'd never seen another dead teenager movie again, that'd be fine because how much more can you do? And today there's not a lot of horror that I watch. I think it's, I'm, I'm not a big fan of gore, gore porn, which a lot of horror movies have become. And, you know, as your taste buds evolve, I mean, I'm, the movies I enjoy usually have deeper levels of character. And so they were a lot of fun at the time, but they're not as much fun for me now. Although there's certain, you know, movies from back in the day, like, for example, John Carpenter's The Thing is one of my all-time favorite movies. I mean, I just think The Thing is one of the all-time great stories, but not to get away from Chopping Mall too much. And it's loaded with gore, and I don't care. I love it. It's great. <laughs> but I'm not a big fan of gore per se, you know. But, you know, it's like any genre. You know, I'll go see the good ones but I'm not a slave to it the way I think I was when I was younger. When you talk about The Thing from Another World and John Carpenter's The Thing, you know, there's a lot of paranoia, mistrust. If you look at the original, you know, the fear of communism and such. Mm -hmm. Did you have any such aspirations with Chopping Mall, commentary on 80s culture and things when you were writing? If we did or if I did, I don't know that we discussed it a lot. I mean, in the beginning during the main title sequence where we basically show, you know, the mall uh, during the daytime. With 30 years between then and now, I guess maybe we're talking about the nature of consumerism and where America was at the time. But I don't know that that was really intentional. I think it was primarily it's like, here's the mall. This is what it is like during the daytime when it is full of people and full of life. And, you know, we thought it was also a chance to get in some humor. You know, the humor was kind of important to us. Um, you know, I didn't. I don't think Jim or I ever had a moment where we said, "Well, we got to make it funny. It's got to be funny." But we didn't want it to be fun, and we thought that that opening title sequence could sort of set the table a little bit. And of course, then that goes into the into the restaurant where we meet Kelly and Barbara, and we had a lot of fun with that. Um, you know, since we made that movie, you know, the state of California, and I'm assuming most other states have letter ratings for restaurants, you know, just so the consumer knows what they're getting into. And God, that restaurant, <laughs> I would have gotten a D, you know, <laughs> the guy behind the counter, I mean, you know, with the sloppy t-shirt and I don't know what that was that he was wiping on his t-shirt and he was smoking. And, you know, that was just us having fun. With that, I'll go on a tangent here for a moment. That mall was perhaps the most movie-oriented mall I'd ever really noticed. There were movie posters lining the pizza place. At one point, they're in a bathroom. There's movie posters on the wall of the bathroom. Were those Corman references there or just you guys being movie fans? Or Kind of all of the above. That was all us. That was all us. Like. I thought it was interesting that I think there was a sorcerer's poster in the bathroom where Tony O'Dell is, you know, prepping for his uh, introduction to uh, Kelly Maroney. But yeah, all those posters, those movie posters were stuff that we, we threw up there or our director uh, uh, put up there. But that mall, you know, what was interesting that we originally were going to shoot this thing, we designed it for the Beverly Center, which is really big. The Beverly Center is an incredibly big indoor mall that still exists, uh, you know, kind of on the border of West Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And they wanted a ton of money to shoot there. And so we then approached the people at the Sherman Oaks Galleria who said yes. I mean, they, I mean, Commando, I think, had just shot at the mall 
not, not too long before we got there. And of course, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, that was kind of ground zero for that. So, you know, the Sherman Oaks Gallery was, I think we were always destined to go there. We just didn't know it. Did you have to do any rewriting when you switched the mall there? Because I know the story has there were three kill bots, one for each level of the mall, and it was a three-story mall. I just wondered if the geography necessitated any changes. No, we were lucky. The uh, Sherman Oaks Galleria was a three was a three level mall, so that that dovetailed kind of nicely. And I don't think we did any rewriting to accommodate the location. Bob Short, on the other hand, and this is this is fairly well known, and we talk about it on the uh, the Blu-ray extras, that the the treads for the killbots were designed to fit on the escalators at the Beverly Center, which were wider. How much wider? I don't remember. But they were wider. So when we had to go to the, you know, the Sherman Oaks Galleria, uh, we had to uh, be a little improvisational as to how we got the robots on the escalators. And that's, that's some stuff I did with second unit. Oh, and I, I think that's a great shot when I watched the movie, you know, when I saw it for the first time, seeing those robots coming up the escalator, both intimidating, but also, you know, funny to see a Killbot using an escalator, but yeah, I I just wished the bonus features had a picture of somebody wearing that outfit on the top of their head. Yeah, going up. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. We had, I think, we had an onset photographer most of the time, and I seem to recall there was one or two or maybe even three big loose leaf books loaded with thirty five millimeter transparencies, but. Unfortunately, they were lost to the sands of time. I mean, they they were either uh, borrowed permanently uh, or they were sort of thrown away, which is possible and sad, or they are in some storage facility someplace that we, you know, we had no idea where they were. I would have loved to have had more imagery from the shoot, but there was very, very little. I mean, I had a couple of snaps. Um, there was very, very little, unfortunately. Luckily, Bob Short had a couple of shots, which you know you can see in the uh, Blu-ray features. And the thing that was great was, in addition to a design that an early, early design that I had done for the robots, uh, Bob found some images of his, you know, uh, the design work that his people did. So that's one of the things that's that's really different with the Blu-ray from the original DVD, which I also produced, produced and directed that featurette where, you know, we talked about the, you know, the kill box. So, you know, there is something new uh, for the fans to see and to, to learn if, you know, they look at the Blu-ray today. To go back to your writing of this a little bit, one thing you said earlier this interview was that you feel the, you know, dead teenager movies lack characterization and you know they're just flat characters up for the slaughter i'm paraphrasing you there or my interpretation of what you said (laughs) okay did you do anything with chopping mall to try to differentiate that and give these characters more depth than you'd find in friday the 13th part five i would love to say we did but looking back i don't know that we actually did anything like that at all the thing that we did, uh, and I think that worked for us tremendously, was the casting. And Jim and I cast the movie. There is no casting director credit on that picture. We we did the casting. We we brought in everybody to the Corman's office. Uh, we saw everybody, and um, 
we were very, very fortunate that we found a great cast. Now, everyone always says this, but I think in our case, I think it actually really is the truth. And the reason why I say that is we never had any of the cast members interact with any other cast members during the casting process. We just found the actors that we thought worked best. And one of the, one of the keys, I think, is that everybody is kind of different looking. You know, so often you have, you know, shows where there are groups of actors who are physically very similar and you kind of, you're hard to tell. But the best example of that was strangely in a band of brothers. When, you know, when I watched band of brothers for the first time, I didn't know who was who for at least a couple of viewings because all those heads looked the same underneath the helmet. Well, one of the things we did is I think we had, you know, very, you know, different actors who brought, you know, their own thing to it. Uh, their own physicality, their own look. And I think that helped us a lot. That and the fact that they were all really good. I think they made, you know, I, if I'm gonna, I'll just say it, I don't think the characters were that deep. And I think they found a way to at least humanize them and flesh them out a little bit more. And that's what great casting does. And boy, did we get lucky. We got really lucky with that cast. To this day, when I look at the movie, I still think we, we got really, really lucky. And the other thing was, they were all fun to work with. You know, that was, that's a big deal. When you're working through the night and everybody's tired, it's, it's nice that there weren't any prima donnas. Did the cast get along? Yeah, they, they actually really did. I mean, what was, what was interesting about the casting of this was, you know, most times you had these kids who would go to school together and they're friends. These people worked together. So that, I think that was something that helped us. They got along really well. John Terleski is somebody who came in for us. I, when he read for us, I liked him. He had been doing a show on NBC called Legmen, which I think lasted maybe eight episodes or something like that. But I had seen him, and I thought he was good. He did that with Bruce Greenwood, by the way, who you know went on to a lot of fame with the Star Trek movies, uh, the new the new J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Trek movies. And then it work, works like crazy. Bruce Greenwood has had a, a really long and, and – you know, I guess I'll say distinguished, you know, he's, you know, he, John decided he wanted to direct, but Bruce stayed in the acting thing and Bruce is, you know, has worked nonstop, but I'd seen John. I said, this guy's really good. Jim had wanted, you know, and John had come in and read for Russell Todd's part and Jim had seen Russell. And I think Jim said, he's my guy. And I said, well, you know, this guy is really good. You know, why don't we, why don't we want to give him, give him Mike? Why don't we give him that part? you know, uh, sort of a consolation prize, but it was still a job. And, well, I'll never forget this. Uh, one Saturday morning, the phone rings, and I think it's about 8.30. Well, I used to be a night owl. I would stay up till 4 in the morning, uh, either watching films or working, because I was, again, I was freelancing. And, you know, I pick up the phone, and it's, it's like, yeah. He goes, Steve, John Terleski calling. Never forgot that. And I'm going, oh, boy, <laughs> I'm in trouble. Because uh, he sounded he sounded a little steamed, and he says, uh, "I'm having a little bit of a problem uh, trying to understand why uh, I, I've been told that I got the, a part that I did not read for." And I explained to him that that you know another guy got that part, but I liked him a lot, and I wanted him in the movie. And and he was sort of having a little bit of a hard time with this. And at the you know even though I was a little foggy when this was happening, I'm going to myself, "Oh, this this could be trouble." And we had one read-through at Corman's office one Saturday afternoon, and John was late. 
And John showed up and he was, he was, again, he was, he was a little cranky. And I think at some point I said to Jim, I said, I don't know if this guy's going to work out because he sort of didn't seem like he wanted to be there. And so it was too late to really change anything. Um, so he had the job and he worked the first week, I believe, um, of shooting. And he turned out to be just, well, A, he's a fantastic actor. And B, he's a fantastic guy. He's, he is still one of my very best friends. And our relationship, you know, our friendship began on the set of that movie. And it is, you know, and we're still very close all these years later. I mean, he was funny in real life. Um, he was uh, a huge movie fan. You know, we're always we're, you know, <laughs> standing around craft services doing dialogue for movies and having a lot of laughs. And he's just, he's just the greatest guy. And a really wonderful actor. I mean, one of the things that he brought to the part was, you know, the famous, you know, gum thing. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he had said to himself, he said, well, I'm going to be a dick. And what's more dicky than chewing gum like the way he did. And <laughs> he had a ton of fun with that part. We thought he was great. And more importantly, Roger Corman thought he was great. And that's how, you know, that's how John got Deathstalker too. Because Roger saw, saw John and said, something's going on with this guy. He's, you know, he may turn out to be big. And Roger always had pretty good instincts for that. But yeah, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship, as they say in Casablanca. And, and John brought a lot to the part too, which is you always want resourceful actors. You know, you always want actors who are going to just come in and you don't want them to just come in and do the lines. You want them to maybe bring something to the dance. And John brought a lot of that character to the dance. With you guys being friends now for so many years, did you tell him the story of how you didn't think he was going to work out? Oh yeah, no, he, I, you know, he knows, he knows that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just one of those things where you start in one place and you don't necessarily know, you know, where it's going to go. And, and, you know, we, we laugh about it a lot, you know, when, on those rare occasions when we talk about it, but man, am I glad I, I said, let's give this guy the job. While we're talking about the casting, there was one cast member, I can't remember if it was on your 20th anniversary commentary or the 30th anniversary commentary, but you said that Susie Slater seems to have just kind of fallen off the map. You weren't able to... Well, I mean, I don't... Yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting. I don't think anything horrible has happened to her. I just think that that she... Uh, I, I, I tried to find her... We had a, a 29th anniversary screening at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood um, a little more than a year ago. And it was kind of like a high school reunion. And everybody showed up, but I couldn't find Susie. They're just, she wasn't to be found. And um, on the wild, crazy off chance that she listened to this podcast, uh, I just want to say, uh, you know, we, we, we really tried to find you. Uh, we, we, we missed you. We would have loved to have seen you and caught up because uh, she was a doll. She was, she was a delight to work with. And, um, you know, she was, you know, she was an important component of the cast and I wish she had been there, but yeah, I, I don't know what she's up to or where she's done. I mean, you know, the weird part is it seems like we made the movie a couple of years ago and we made it 30 years ago. So a lot happens in 30 years. And all I, all I know is I hope she's healthy and happy. How did she end up being part of the cast? Well, I'll tell you, we saw a ton of great-looking women, uh, you know, young actresses at the time. And we, oh, man, I, 
I'm sure that Playboy was sending was sending over, you know, any of their centerfolds that had any desires uh, towards acting. We saw a bunch of them. Um, there was one gal, boy, I wish I could remember her name now, but she came really close. I really liked her. And we'd, again, we'd seen a lot of, you know, either playmates or, or you know, the young actresses of the time. I think every young actress that was making genre pictures at the time, we, we, if we didn't see all of them, we saw a ton of them. And then I remember Susie came in one Friday and uh, she auditioned with me. I was playing 30, which, you know, I mean, Tony is, is average height. I'm six, four. I'm, I'm a big guy. I mean, I was as unfurdy like as they get. <laughs> um, and, and she came in and she killed it. She, I don't know what happened. She took her good auditioning pill that day, that morning with her, with her vitamins or something, but she came in and she just owned it. And we, like I said, we'd seen a lot of gals and we were, you know, we had kind of a list of who we liked and she came in, she killed it. I think Jim and I and Julie, uh, asked her to leave Julie's office because we were doing it in Julie's office. And I said, that's her. And they said, yeah, we agree. We <laughs> gave it to her kind of on the spot and she shrieked. She <laughs> screamed, she screamed with joy. She was just so she was so thrilled to get the part, and I think she's great in the movie. I mean, she was great in the audition, but I think she's also great in the movie. And she and John had had such great chemistry together. I just I I sort of wish they were around a little bit longer. You know, I loved. I think there's that bit where John, you know, John is underneath the sheet, and she goes, "Michael, you know, I don't allow that." And then John says, he says, well, I seem to recall that last week you uh, allowed this. And, you know, and, and he says, and that was all improv on John's part. But again, it was funny. And one of the things that we never did was cut the funny. We, we loved the funny. The movie is not intended to be a comedy. But, you know, think of some of the greatest action movies you've ever seen. They all have a lot of humor in them. You know, I think humor is a very key component. And when you, when you back into it, and I think we back into it a lot. You don't you don't throw it away. You don't you don't cut it. Was she the same age as the other cast members? I think so. I mean, you know, they were all part of what I call the world world's oldest teenager club. <laughs> I think they were probably all somewhere in their twenties. You know, and they weren't technically teenagers. Again, that was the other thing is they were working, you know. So they were kind of young adults. So it wasn't that schism where you know, you have somebody who's playing, you know, who's who's in their 20s playing somebody who's in their teens. I mean, I seem to recall reading a story years and years ago. There was an actress named Gabrielle Carteris or Charteris, who's on, I think, Beverly Hills 90210. And she was, I think, 27 when she was doing that show, when she started it. Uh -huh. She was way older than she was supposed to be. Now, you know, she was a very good actress, and I think she made it work, but... Yeah, in our case, we had the benefit of them not actually being in school. They were working. So the the age thing was not an issue. Um, and I think they were all, I think every one of, every member in the cast was within a year or two, uh, you know, age-wise. And also you had Barbara Crampton, who at that point would have already done Reanimator and the same year as Chopping Mall from Beyond came out. So she was kind of your scream queen, right? You know, I, I I guess I may be almost ashamed, but remember I said almost, that 
I don't think I really knew that at the time. I think Jim might have known it. I think again, you know, again, the thing is that everybody had to come in and read. Nobody just got the part. And Barbara came in, and my recollection was that she killed it. And one of the things about Barbara, and and Barbara's, you know, Barbara's a doll. She's she's a delight. You know, she came in, and and I think I talked to her after the audition, and she said something to me that I. I guess I've never really forgotten what she says. She says, I love to audition. You know, I think a lot of actors, Carrie Emerson, for example, don't like to audition. When I saw Carrie at the, uh, at the reunion screening last year, I always wondered why she sort of gave it up. And she told me, she said, well, I didn't like to audition. You know, I mean, Carrie was stunning to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just, boy, she... Uh, you know, women don't look a whole lot better than, than Carrie. But the thing about Carrie was she was more than just a pretty face. I thought she was really good in Chopping Well, I think there's at one point in one of the commentaries, she does that line and says, I'm sorry for you. I guess I'm just not used to being chased around the mall in the middle of the night by killer robots. Now, I will, I will completely admit that is a stupid line. That is a dopey, dopey line. And it's wordy and it's tough for an actor. And again, when I was looking at the movie, when we were doing the special features, the new special feature, I said, I said to my editor, I said, God damn it. Look at what she did. Look at what she did with that. She took that stupid line and she made it work. And if you can do that line, which is a great line, by the way, it's a fun line. But if you can do that line, which is a mouthful to say and make it work the way she did, she was obviously talented and, you know, perfect for any number of shows that could have been done in the 80s or even in the 90s. I think she did some soap opera work um, maybe after she did, you know, she did Chopping Mall. I'm not entirely sure. It looks like she has one TV credit after Chopping Mall and that's where it ends. So most of her stuff was before this. Well, you know, she was a mom, but I always thought that Carrie was sort of, the, you know, a really, you know, a probably a potentially good career that never quite, you know, came into focus. And she didn't like to audition, whereas Barbara, you know, Bar- you know Barbara is just, oh, man, I was going to say ballsy, but, you know, that's not usually a word you, you ascribe to a woman. But, you know, Barbara's ballsy. She just kind of walks in and does it. You know, she just comes in and owns it. I, I love actors like that. You know, no fear. And, and Barbara just seemed to be fearless. And, and that was great. So what are your recollections about the release of this movie and its reception back in 86 when it was released to theaters? I think it was probably reasonably successful. I mean, Roger had distribution costs, but he didn't have to pay for the movie. The movie was paid for. So all Roger had to recoup were probably his, you know, his distribution costs. And and my guess is he had, oh boy, you know, a couple of dozen prints or something like that. They were probably playing regionally. I think, I think when those video deals were made in the eighties, I think a certain amount of cities, the movie had to play in a certain amount of cities, and sometimes those cities were part of the deal. Um, but I don't know that Chopping Mall played everywhere, although uh, I think it had a, a wide-ish release. And when I mean wide-ish, I mean I think it played a lot of cities or places, but it wasn't like you know when a movie opens on Friday, it, it goes to 3,000 screens. My feeling is those prints, and this is the case with a lot of Rogers movies, they would literally sort of work their way around the country. So Roger may not have made a lot of prints on the movie, but I know it did play, and it did play in New York City. 
there was a snapshot that one of my buddies took of the uh, the logo, the uh, marquee rather, for the RKO twin on Broadway. And, uh, you know, there was the uh, bright red shopping mall logo. It's very interesting. New York City in the old days, uh, you know, uh, Times Square looks nothing today like it was back in the day. 42nd Street as well, which was, uh, you know, basically the home of Grindhouse Cinema. That those theaters on Broadway sometimes would be playing these really big studio films. And those big studio films would sometimes tank. And so every once in a while, you would get these B-movies, these drive-in movies, playing at these big four, 500-seat houses in New York City. I mean, I'll never forget the, I think it was a Tuesday night, I went to go see that crown picture, Beach Girls, at the Lowe's State on Broadway. And I was with a few of my buddies, and I think we totaled, I think there were about 10 people in the theater for a 10 o'clock show of Beach Girls. But, you know, Crown was able to get that movie booked at the low state on Broadway for a week. Now, the low state for perspective was, you know, it was a twin theater, and I think each theater had four or 500 seats. And that's where movies like The Exorcist played. That's where movies like The French Connection played. That's where The Godfather, I think, played at one time. You know, it was a prestigious Broadway house, just like the RKO was, just like the Rivoli Theater, which was just up the block. I think that's where Sorceress played. You know, Sorceress, which was, you know, Jim's, I think, first produced screenplay. That's that's drive. That's a drive-in movie, at you know, uh, to be sure. And there's playing at the same theater Jaws played in for months. And this is the one thing I kind of miss about the old days. I kind of miss, miss the idea that, you know, in, you know, if you wanted to see a movie, you had to go see it in the theater. Mm-hmm. And so you could get you could get to see some of those B movies in these great houses, depending upon where you live. I'm sure there was an analogous you know, situation, um, you know, like in places like Chicago or Philadelphia or San Francisco or any major city, where every once in a while you get these B movies playing in these A venues, and you know, and then guess what? You know, you the viewer, you win. So I never saw Chopping Mall in New York, but I did see Chopping Mall in a, in a couple of theaters in Los Angeles. Now, I read on IMDb, but I know that that is sometimes notoriously incorrect for information, but they said that Killbots was 90 minutes and that it had about 15 minutes cut to be released as Chopping Mall. Is, did you, is that true? I didn't hear anything about that. I knew Roger Corman made some edits or suggested some edits before it was released, but I didn't hear anything about a longer cut of Killbots. Okay, the version of Chopping Mall that you can see today on the Blu-ray is the same cut that basically went out as Killbots. The one area of confusion and I'm not entirely sure I have it completely straight, but I think I do, is that it was released on television as Killbots. Roger had the TV rights. Roger's deal with Vestron was Vestron got worldwide video rights, and Roger had theatrical and television. So I saw Killbots on a Monday night movie slot here in Los Angeles on Channel 11. And it was in a two hour slot. It was, it was their eight to 10 movie of which they used to run. They used to run a movie every night from eight to 10 and then the 10 o'clock news, which a number of local LA channels did. 
and they had a big premiere for Killbox. I think it was on a Monday night. It was, uh, you know, kick off the week. And there was, uh, I think, a full-page ad. And so I'm going, oh, this is great. But what they did was they completely recut the picture. That's not true. They didn't completely recut the picture. What they did is they took most of the objectionable stuff out and then padded it with trims. And they were trims. They weren't even important scenes. They, they were literally trims. And then they padded out uh, the scene where, where Allison and Ferdy are watching Attack of the Crab Monsters. And I don't know that it ever was 90 minutes. I think it was just a few extra minutes. Um, because those local movie, you know, movie slots used to have a lot of commercials in it. So I don't know what the actual time is, that, the, but the TV version of Killbots was, I think, longer than Chopping Mall. But the pace and the rhythm... Uh, and the fun, you know, was, was harmed by the sort of um, uh, rejiggering of that picture for time. That's the thing. You know, they had, you know, the, I mean, Chopping Mall is a short picture anyway. And that was certainly not our intention. You know, we had a, a script that I think was about 110 pages. But we described a lot of the action. Well, you know, Leslie Rosenthal, who, you know, did an amazing job cutting it. And I still think she did an amazing job cutting it all these years later especially using Roger's crappy, you know, moviolas, you know, it's amazing what you can do cutting on digital today. I mean, that's how I cut. And then I think about what she was using those crummy old moviolas in Roger's studio and, and she cut the movie as well as she did. I mean, I just, I, you know, I, 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 I clap my hands. I say, bravo. But the, uh, you know, the, the, the running time on chopping mall was always very tight. You know, Leslie cut that movie fast. I think Roger may have made a couple of trims, and maybe those trims wound up in that TV edition of, of Killbots. But the movie that we made is the movie that exists today. There, there is no other different or better uh, expanded edition. Um, you know, that's, that's the other reason why, you know, you go back to those scenes with Paul and Mary, you know, with the horse, trying to sneak the horse into the mall. I mean, I'm sure if we had shot those, those would be in the movie, and the movie would probably be oh, maybe 79 minutes or even 80 minutes. I'll tell you one thing, though. Roger was not going to release a movie over 80 minutes. Roger liked to make movies where they would fit onto four reels because he didn't want to have an extra reel or an extra, or any extra print uh, that he would have to pay for. With those trims that were discussed, and I know in the bonus features it was said that primarily there were character moments and you guys did a great job of explaining how the pacing of the movie, you know, was improved by cutting those. But with with this new Blu-ray release, and it is a gorgeous Blu-ray release in so many regards and has you know, three commentaries and so so many featurettes, why not include some of those deleted scenes on this package? Probably because they were they were they they were either tossed, taken, or buried so deep someplace that I, I didn't have the time to go find them. I I produced all these special features kind of in a hurry. Not not at, you know it's not like I turned it around all in a week, but I had a relatively short time to do all the interviews and all the and you know and all the editing and cutting and commentaries. Um, I you know if I knew where they were. I probably would have included them as deleted scenes. But uh, the thing is that Roger, I don't know that he thought a whole lot about the future when he was making his movie. You know, even though home video was, was kind of booming at the time, the notion of extras um, was, was not quite um, 
really, I don't know, I don't know if extras really came in during the, the VHS days at all. I think it was with Laserdisc when people were starting to do things like extras. And then when DVD kicked in, that's when extras, I think, were becoming almost commonplace. I mean, everybody sort of expected them. But, you know, who knows what happened to those trends? I mean, maybe they're with the negative, but the answer is I don't know. Well, the simple answer is I don't know where they are, and I don't know where they were, and that's why we didn't include them. And I don't know if you have a question for this, but I'll just take, I'll, I'll segue into this. Is that The one thing that's great about the Blu-ray now is it's in a theatrical aspect ratio of 1 to 185. When we shot the movie, we composed it for 1 to 185. But Roger, because he knew it was going to go to video, wanted us to leave, leave it to the aperture open, so it was open matte. So there was not a hard matte on the picture. Now, you know, when I shot Second Unit, I actually was lucky enough to shoot some scenes with, you know, some of the actors. And one of the, the, scene I, one of the scenes I shot was the girls in the air duct. And I composed it so they, it would be sort of tight and claustrophobic on them. And that scene never played quite as well for me because it was, you know, because of the open mat for, for home video. The girls had a little bit more room in the frame and... That was not my intention when we shot it. I wanted it to be tight and claustrophobic and, you know, to try and get across the idea that this was not fun. And so now the Blu-ray, you know, what's gratifying for me in that scene and the other scenes I shot, but especially this scene, you know, when you're seeing it in the proper aspect ratio, you know, the scene just for me plays better. You know, the scene I'm sure played fine you know, for people watching it on VHS. And and in point of fact, I don't know if you knew this, but the movie was unbelievably successful on VHS. I was told by somebody who used to own a video store that they heard that the movie sold half a million units or more, but somewhere around half a million units. Well, Vestron was probably wholesaling that tape for, let's say, 30, 35 bucks maybe, and I don't have a calculator nearby, but if you do the math, that's why I made a lot of money with Chopping Hall. You know, that they made a ton of dough with that. Yeah, I know it really f- found a huge audience at that time. And you talk about a half a million units. And to just let our audience remember, this isn't when humans bought stuff. Only video stores were buying stuff because it was, yeah, wholesale price was astronomical. And so that was a huge number. Think about it. $35. The Vestron Blu-ray today retails for $39. And I've noticed on Facebook and some places that there's been a little blowback about the pricing. Well, you know, it's designed to have a retail of that so that, you know, Amazon can sell it for, you know, 27, 28 bucks. You know, the whole idea of this Blu-ray was that the Vestron line, the shopping mall is number one in, and I'm very proud of that, was the first of a criterion collection type approach to genre movies. And the whole idea was that these were going to be quality transfers with lots of extras, and they would become the definitive editions of these films. And I had said to my, my contact at Lionsgate, says, tell me, basically you're doing the criterion collection, but for horror movies. And he said, that's right. So the fans you know, have been looking for this for a long time. And not all that long ago, probably in the last five or six years, did I know that Chopping Mall was a cult picture. And Jim one day said to me, he says, when was the last time you looked at the IMDb page for Chopping Mall or the Amazon page? 
you know, and I said, out of who knows? And he says, go take a look. And I saw not a few comments. I saw pages and pages and pages of comments. And I'm going, holy shit, what did we do? Well, because the thing is, what we did at the time was we made a movie that we wanted to see. We were the audience for the movie that we made. So we put in all this stuff in it that we wanted to see. Well, for some reason, that seemed to translate to the fans in a major, major way that, you know, we thought we were doing essentially, I know it sounds blasphemous, kind of a disposable picture. We didn't think that this movie would stand the test of time. You know, much like Ray Harryhausen, I don't think realized that, you know, I don't think when Ray Harryhausen worked on Mighty Joe Young back in the late 40s, that that movie was going to stand the test of time. Or any of his pictures will be fantastic. I mean, you always hope that's the case. You actually don't want to make a disposable movie. But, you know, we were making a B movie in the 80s that was going to go to the drive-in. Who knows what's going to happen with that kind of stuff? Well, now we know that genre pictures, especially horror genre pictures, have have a life to them that is, is kind of fantastic. It is a genre that kind of keeps on giving, you know, for every new generation. And so, yeah, it was a revelation for me, you know, to find out that we had made this cult classic. And by the way, and I've said this before, I said the American Dairy Association owes me some money because everybody says how cheesy Chopping Mall is. <laughs> you know, every single review or comment, hey, it's cheesy, but it's a great way to spend a Saturday night, you know. <laughs> so who knew? Well, sir, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. This has been great. And, you know, I really did go through all of those bonus features and just couldn't get enough. And I'm glad I could talk to you and get even more information and share it with our audience. Well, Arnie, it's, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that's been so gratifying for Jim and myself is that the response to the Blu-ray has been very, very strong. You know, uh, as the producer of the special features, it's nice to get to get props for them as well because I wanted I wanted them to be fun. And you know, the thing about chopping malls here we are. It's thirty years later for crying out loud, and we're still talking about it. I think every filmmaker hopes that's going to happen when they make a movie. We never thought it was going to happen, but you know, here we are, and you know, people just really love this picture, and I'm not entirely sure why. But I'm not going to fight it. I think I think it's great, and I and, and people say it's fun, and I think that's I think that was the thing that Jim and I were most you know we were con we were conscious of that we wanted to make the movie fun, and I guess we must have uh, we must have done something right because people really enjoy it. One last quick thing: one of the one of the best pieces of fallout from having made Chopping Ball is I'm the writer, producer, director of a new documentary about Larry Cohen which is called King Cohen. And we're in post-production on this right now, and we will have it ready for the world, an unsuspecting world, next year. This whole project got started because of Chopping Mall. I was at a Comic-Con, and a buddy of mine introduced me to Matt Verboise, who's one of the two uh, you know, geniuses behind La La Land Records, which is a, a, a fantastic collector-oriented soundtrack label. And my buddy introduced me to Matt and said, uh, Matt, this is Steve Mitchell. And he goes, Steve Mitchell? You're not the Steve Mitchell that wrote Chopping Mall, are you? And I said, guilty. And he says, I love Chopping Mall. And he was just unbelievably effusive with praise for Chopping Mall. And when I had the idea for the Larry documentary, uh, I, I sort of knew Matt socially you know, for a while. 
by the time I had the idea. I had the idea earlier, but I was trying to get it up on its feet. I had lunch with Matt one day, and I said, listen, I want to do a documentary about Larry Cohen. Are you interested in maybe trying to produce this with me? He goes, I'm already interested. By the end of lunch, he said, I don't know how we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And so here we are, you know, the better part of two years later, and the movie's almost done. We're, you know, I just heard the final pieces of score, and we're going to mix soon, and we're getting ready for some film festivals. And this whole thing got started because Matt Verboys was a huge fan of Chopping Mall. So Chopping Mall has been good to me. Yeah, Matt's a great guy. We've talked to some people from La La Land with their recent Ferris Bueller CD. I think Chopping Mall deserves a La La Land soundtrack release. <laughs> you know, I think it does too. And, you know, you never know. But they do great. They do great work. Larry Cohen, that's a you know, great writer. I think of some of the films that I've seen of his, you know, Maniac Cops, the one I go to, but he did Return to Salem's Lot, which I actually uh, talked to Tara Reid about at one point, and Cellular, Phone Booth, just a ton of films in there with his background. Well, I was always a fan of Larry's, and I think one day I went to his IMDb page, and I was looking for something in particular, and what I found was the fact that he had a ton of credits for things I did not know about. I mean, I think I knew about most of his movies, and I knew about a bunch of his TV shows, but I don't think I knew the length and the breadth of his career. You know, he started in live television in the late 50s. I think he was, a, he was still a teenager. If he wasn't a teenager, he was, pretty, you know, he was like 19 or 20. He started really, really early and did a ton of stuff in the 60s that I knew about and didn't know about. And he's had one of the most remarkable careers of any creative person uh, in the business and a career unlike anybody in the business. I mean, everybody, everybody always calls Roger King of the Bees. And I think Roger's earned that title. But Larry is another version of, of that. And the difference is that Larry wrote, produced, and directed all of his pictures. He did the It's Alive movies. He did the Black Caesar movies. He did the stuff. God told me to. Cue the Winged Serpent. You know, he did uh, Salem's Lot. He did, uh, you know, It's Alive, you know, it's alive Trilogy. He did It's Alive 3. You know, it's back-to-back with Salem's Lot. He did the Ambulance. You know, he did original gangsters. You know, I mean... Larry has an extraordinary, you know, uh, portfolio of work. But the thing that's, that makes him so unique, other than the fact his voice as a writer is unique, is that he was making those movies and writing mainstream stuff at the same time. And so, you know, I got a, I got a phone number from him. I called him up. He answered the phone. I said, hi, I am who I am. I'm interested in doing a documentary about me. He said, come up to the house. So I went up to the house. He made me coffee. I had a pepperidge farm cookie, and I said, "Listen, I would like I would like to do a movie about you. Would you be interested?" He said, sure. You know, we need to cement the legacy. And I said, "Okay, let me see if I can get it financed." And I got it. You know, I got in touch with Matt. You know, we found a way to get it financed together, and here we are, and we're we're pretty close. So again, all goes back to chopping mall. No chopping mall. Matt would Matt and I might not have met. Who knows? I might not be talking to you now. You never know. I'm glad you are, and let us know when that is out. We'll definitely share that information. Great. No, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm anxious to share the movie with the world. I mean, it's 
we need to do like a final mix and I think we need to do some final titles and stuff like that. But the movie is made and some great people talk to us about Larry and then Larry talked to us about Larry and Larry is unbelievably entertaining. And, um, one of the things I'll, I'll just share is that, you know, he wanted to be a stand up comedian before he wanted to, uh, you know, before he thought he would be a creative, uh, you know, person or a filmmaker. So there is a lot of Larry, the stand up you know, in Larry as a character. Larry's a fascinating guy. He's an amazing guy. I've I've gotten to know Larry really, really well and it's been it's been a great adventure, uh, you know, telling his story. And uh and there's so much of it. So um yeah, it's called King Cohen and we should be available in, in twenty seventeen. Well that's great. I I can't wait to see that. I'm gonna go ahead and follow King Cohen movie on Twitter here so I can keep up. Fantastic, fantastic. All right, well, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure, sir. Yeah, likewise, Arnie. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks again, Steve, for joining me, and thanks also again to Jim Wynorski for spending some time talking with me about Chopping Mall. And thanks to the gentlemen at La La Land Records and David Fine, who worked on several of the bonus features for Chopping Mall, for helping arrange these interviews. And remember, if you want to hear our review of Chopping Mall for a few more weeks, you can hear reviews of Chopping Mall plus seven other horror of 1986 films. The Hitcher, House, April Fool's Day, Vamp, Deadly Friend, Trick or Treat, and last Friday's release from Beyond. These shows are available for this donation drive that's running until December 31st. And really, it is your donation that allows us to keep doing what we do on Now Playing. Without donors, the show has to stop. And it's thanks to donors that we're able to do so many bonus shows, not just the bonus donation reviews, but bonus shows like this one talking to Jim and Steve. Thank you to everyone who's donated. And I hope after hearing our Chopping Mall review, you've enjoyed these interviews. And again, if you haven't donated, head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate or click the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. You can go silver level and hear five reviews of the Fly films. Gold level gets you the five Fly reviews plus the eight horror movies of 1986 films. And if you go platinum, you can join us starting tomorrow with our reviews of the Reanimator trilogy. And thank you and have a nice day. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes the film portion of our presentation. If you enjoy the show we do week after week, help keep us on the air. You can find a link to pledge by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. When I'm happy, everybody's happy. That's for sure. What's the magic word? Please. Oh, Mike, hurry back. The film reviewed in this podcast in all dialogue, music, and sound effects used are the property of their original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Linda, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. I... It's all right. I guess I'm just not used to being chased around a mall in the middle of the night by killer robots. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production copyright 2016, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Thank you. Have a nice day.